Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Dan McQuillan, who is a lecturer in creative and social computing in the Department of Computing at the University of London, as well as the author of Resisting AI, an anti-fascist approach to artificial intelligence. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Oh, really great to be here. I guess just to begin with, the book is Resisting AI, but it did start out as something else. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of the book? Oh, sure. I guess what you mean is that when I started writing it, I was really looking for a project of AI for the people because, you know, I recognized the hazards of broader field of machine learning and AI, you know, being in the business a bit, as it were, but also having a social perspective. You know, I recognized the risks, all right, but I also wanted to explore, you know, what what could a horizontalist, you know, grassroots participation and so on mean for that kind of technology? You know, how could it be turned or even deturned, you know, into something that was uh, sort of community positive? But, you know, as I went through it, as I engaged even more deeply with the technology, but also with the all the resonances that it's ever more clearly connected to, I just, yeah, I just switched paths, I suppose, to a position of uh, militant resistance. Just from first principles, when we talk about AI, what are we talking about? Yeah, well, that's a good place to start. And AI is obviously a very broad, it's a moving feast historically, although it you know has always carried some some genetics of its own, I would say white supremacy has always been, you know, and, and sort of a colonial imperialist perspective has never been far from AI. But AI has meant many different things over the years. And I'm very specific because my analysis tries to be quite concrete, tries to be quite materialist. So I'm very specific that I'm talking about the AI that we have right now. And the AI that we have right now is a subset of machine learning. And it's a very particular subset called largely neural networks. That's really what AI is currently based on. That might sometimes be called connectionist AI because it doesn't rely on any inbuilt set of rules or heuristics. It just relies on particular architectures of internal arrangements of many, many different parameters, which are statistically optimized to produce results. So I'm really very much talking about not AI of the future or AI of the past, but the AI that we have right now. Dan, one thing that occurred to me when reading about some of the, I guess, what I'd consider the technical aspects of a discussion of artificial intelligence is there's a lot to it. Uh, It's quite complex. And I was wondering, what do you think are the most 
vital aspects of AI as it's currently practiced that um, the broader public should be able to uh, recognise or consider as being of most political um, importance? Well, first off, that there's there's no relationship to any kind of intelligence as anybody, any ordinary person might understand it. Yeah, there's no, there's nothing in in this that is intelligent. That's a complete misnomer. I think the fact that it's very much a, a crank the handle machine. You know, it's it's a method that very much relies on huge quantities of data. That that's that's a prerequisite. And these particular kinds of algorithms, these kind of large mangles of data. Um, which mean that it's, it's kind of magic power is the fact that neural networks are able to do this idea of a universal approximation. So if you give it something, you know, your training data, the stuff that you've got, and you also have the thing that you want, predictions, targets, classifications, whatever it is, in theory, at least, and in practice, you know, quite a lot. An arrangement, one other arrangement of this stuff is able to mash up the data to make a reasonable connection between those two things. In other words, it can always, it can always map from one to the other. And it's, it's actually a shift from the kind of machine learning that went before, which required a lot of specialist tuning and you needed to have what they call domain experts. You needed to, if you're doing healthcare AI, you needed to have like people who knew about healthcare involved and stuff like that. The kind of magic power of this AI is that you just need the data and the compute power of your algorithms and you can churn out correlations between your input and your output. And so there's a few very immediate social implications of that. I mean, the first one is that you need, you you can't really have this kind of AI without having in effect a surveillance society of some kind, because it just needs a shed load of data to do anything. There's no way around it. So, you know, unless we're living, you know, you have to have a kind of surveillance capitalism type setup. Plus, and I think this is actually quite significant, it's, it's a very distancing technology. You know, it's, it's kind of mi- almost militates against any real engagement with the areas that it's being applied to. It's a kind of universal solvent, um, which is, of course, one of its appeals to various institutions and governments in crisis of one kind or another. You know, you apply this particular technology and it seems to do its magic work in connecting whatever it is you've got with what it is you want to get out of it. And in a way, the less attention you pay to context and detail, you know, the reality of people's lives or the particularities of any given context, the better and easier it becomes. You know, this is a way of scaling and abstracting away from any of those awkward frictions and complexities of the world that most of us inhabit. The mental image that reading through some of the book conjured for me was The Wizard of Oz and this wonderful machine that's responsible for all these you know, magical events and, and processes. But behind it, there's something else going on, which is quite human and quite, I guess, social in a sense. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what you think are the particular dangers that so-called AI makes more possible. And I suppose, yeah, the more authoritarian or fascistic elements of this uh, colossal machine in a way, it's a bit of a follow-on from what I was just saying in the sense that I absolutely think AI, you know, while hugely flawed in terms of its of its effectiveness as advertised, you know, would be hugely dangerous, is hugely dangerous in the hands of authoritarian institutions or entities or governments. That's, that's you know, almost a, goes without saying. But the danger that I'm most focused on 
to address your question is what comes before and why I think particularly AI is a danger and should be something on the agenda of anti-fascists and should in fact, or, or does in fact deserve that whatever our responses to it are, are also anti-fascist is that it's, it's very carelessness, if you like, is encouraging of what I call in the book I borrow from Hannah Arendt, you know, this idea of thoughtlessness, which is this kind of just an acquiescence to the idea that the correct ordering is being carried out and, and a lack of sort of requirement or urgency to, to ask critical questions about what's really happening, you know, in reality, as, as opposed to at the cleaner level of this, you know, abstracted manipulations and optimizations. So it's very similar to, I'm just reading, rereading actually, Zygmunt Bauman's book, Modernity and the Holocaust, which of course is trying to make a strong argument about the relationship between, if you like, the sort of bureaucratic administration of life and uh, the way that facilitated you know, the, the rise of fascism, particularly in Germany. And I do feel that what is the, a very urgent danger with AI is not that it's actually introducing anything new. You know, these dangers are, as, as you guys know better than I do, you know, already extremely visible, extremely dynamic, you know, developing in many, many places in many different forms. You know, fascism is on the rise in many different guises. But what it requires to be, you know, really dangerous is the acquiescence or, part, or, or passive participation or, or, or sort of being swept along of large numbers of people. And I think what makes people vulnerable to that is a loss of certain kinds of relationality, a loss of certain kinds of subjectivity and a manipulation towards other kinds of relationality and other kinds of subjectivity. And that's what I think in a way AI is massaging people towards uh, social relations towards, you know, it, it increases a vulnerability or it increases what it feeds into what I think Deleuze and Qatari call my, the microfascism. So it's, it's the, not so much the visible party political or movement based explicitly ideological organizing, but the degradation of, you know, ordinary relations, almost pre-subjective relations that exist between all of us that allow that kind of thing to spread. Dan, one of the things you discuss in the book is the way that these AIs, as they exist, have a tendency to cheat and that, in a sense, they have an innate logic of austerity. Could you explain how that works and how that plays into things like uh, the robo-debt scandal that we've seen in Australia in the past few years? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess another important figure for me in writing the book was, you know, not only writing at a time of, I mean, you know, I'm, I suppose I'm possibly more aware than a lot of people in terms of having an eye on the fascist, explicitly fascist threat. But I think that was a riot, time rising fascism seemed like an appropriate time to write this book, but also because of austerity, because of the very visible, large scale harm to human life that was coming about through this idea that there was some kind of, you know, the, the financial crash was some kind of natural crisis and, and the need to respond to it in a way that sort of, you know, cuts our cloth to suit our situation, you know, that, that there's just no choice here, but we have to, you know, we have to triage, we have to cut back, we have to, you know, we, have, it, we, we just need to survive the situation. And the only way we're going to do that is by limiting who can get on the lifeboat. And that happens to be, you know, if, if you're looking for something that AI, as we know it, is really good at, it's exactly that, because it is ultimately an optimization machine. It doesn't actually produce anything. It doesn't actually solve any problems. But one thing it does do, because that's at the heart of its essential technical operations, is optimize. So if you're looking for a kind of machinic utilitarianism, this is it. 
And in that's very much the, the sort of moral, if I can call it that, or sort of amoral uh, perspective that fuels, you know, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of seeing like a state, a lot of state level responses to this kind of crisis where the prioritization of keeping the financial system on the road or the prioritization of certain political agendas is taken as unquestioned. And the net result is, well, how do we restrict things for the remaining people, for the ordinary citizens? How do we cut things back for them in a way that's, you know, somehow optimal or somehow optimized? And of course, you know, that totally plays into the, the existing and underlying structures, the great myth of most of the discussions around AI is it's as if this stuff is being introduced into a p- level playing field. And of, of course it isn't. And of course it absolutely resonates with existing structural hierarchies, you know, the sort of cascading effects of harms in society where AI or no AI, it's always the poorest that pay the highest price for any particular crisis. AI just makes sure that it's finely tuned. On the other hand, AI is a massive jobs producer. We've seen that there's an unseen human dimension of the production of deep learning. Could you speak a little bit about this? That was a very sarcastic way to introduce that. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I mean, just as an aside, I had to, you know, for for my sins, as they say, I had to go through the um, UK um, government's white paper on AI. And it had a, has a hilarious bit in it where it talks about AI being job generating, but then only refers to jobs in the AI industry and, none, and makes no mention of jobs that might be lost because of AI. But the jobs that you're referring to, I'm guessing, are, you know, are another aspect, actually, that I think is irrevocable with AI as we know it, which is the huge amount of um, exploited, uh, casualized, precaritized, outsourced and essentially colonialized labor that has to go with it. And I think generative AI, you know, large language models, which is ChatGPT and all of that, all of their ilk are an interesting point of discussion here because the original AI, if you like, of this generation, the deep learning, the original deep learning, the image classification, that very clearly had huge amounts, required huge amounts of of very poorly paid labor just to be viable because you've got giant that you, you as i said at the beginning you need these giant data sets for supervised learning which is what that was they need to be labeled you need to label what they are so you can train the machine and and there's just no way that's going to be viable unless you've got a massively exploitable labor force you can't pay people a living wage you know under any circumstances and make this stuff work financially and what you've got at the moment is an interesting evolution in that where the uh, models like transformers are to some extent, fulfilling a kind of holy grail of the industry itself, which is self-training models. These are self-supervised learning. So you just give it a million billion words from the internet and it figures out these statistical patterns that it's looking for itself. But as it turns out, of course, you know, the, the, it cannot do that in a way that's really meaningful or useful or applicable in the real world, of course, because it has no grounding in the real world and has zero understanding of anything. So to make that stuff useful, you still have to have a huge amount of low-paid exploited labor in at least a couple of key areas. And the first one, which is the one that's become well-known quite rightly, is the explicitly neo-colonial exploitation of people in in Kenya in particular was the was the big story about chat GPT. But also for, for example, the self-driving cars, a lot of the training for that data is done in, you know, crashing economies like Venezuela. But there's always that labor being required in the case of large language models just to, you know, 
ex exorcise as much as possible of the child abuse and Nazism and whatever explicit fascism that's that's in the data to make it even palatable. Plus, you have to train the statistical models that you get out of the raw data to respond you know, in the way that we're all unfortunately becoming familiar with, with the chat GPT style interface, you have to get it to, you know, be able to write a limerick in the style of Einstein or whatever it is. And that again, requires lots and lots of examples that have to be created by somebody. So this is a very long winded way of trying to justify my thesis, which is that there is no AI without vast quantities of poorly paid and exploited labor. It's, it's very weird, this modern, so-called modern technology, this highest and most sophisticated computational products of our times, because so many things about it harken back to, you know, at best, the Victorian era. You know, our, our advanced technologies are being used to precaritize people and, and sort of reintroduce labor conditions that were last seen in, you know, the late 19th century. Trauma as a service. Yeah, Although exactly. perhaps that's just always been capitalism. Yeah. I was wondering, could you also speak to, I suppose, the, the environmental impact of these things, which doesn't seem to get a lot of airplay? Yeah, I think, well, it, it's interesting that you say that because I'm really hoping, I, I see a, a rising interest in it. And I think it is actually one of those, the, the environmental impact, just the very material constitution of this stuff is p- potentially a real front for action on it. So as well as needing vast quantities of this abstract thing that we call data, and, and, and as well as requiring all this human labor we just talked about, as you're, as you're hinting at, this requires a vast, a very material infrastructure. Most of that manifests as what we call data centers or service centers, whatever you want to call them, large warehouses, you know, full of, full of computers, basically. But not only full of computers. I mean, if you, if you look these things up on the internet or if you ever um, manage to see one and they're not easy to find because they keep themselves deliberately sort of opaque and in the background, the biggest thing you'll notice is the air conditioning system, you know, first of all. And that's because, of course, all this computing power produces vast amounts of heat and requires vast amounts of cooling. And I think actually that seems to be the area where the the environmental impacts are going to, are, are already kicking in in the most relatable way you know it's like yes we can see that this vast computing infrastructure is obviously hugely carbon emitting at the same time the industry itself is well aware that that's a bit of an achilles heel and is you know throwing as much as it can in terms of green rhetoric at this you know how we're offsetting and we're going to have solar powers for you know solar carbon neutral blah 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 most of it is is bunk anyway but they they understand that is a problem but the the other factor, which is, as you say, much less considered in popular discourse, let's say, is just the water consumption. These things just need a lot of cooling, really a lot of cooling, very similar to Bitcoin in that sense. You know, there's th- thousands and millions of gallons of cooling water required for these data centers. There's many, many examples now where these things have been imposed on communities which already have water stress. And so I, I think the, the, the question of sort of almost communities or data centers is becoming a very, very live one. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. And of course, on the Community Radio Plus app available wherever you get your apps. Check it out. We are talking to Dan McQuillan about resisting AI. I'm wondering, Dan, if you can talk about the ways in which AI or these machine technologies 
helped create what's, I, I guess, in recent years begun to be understood as a world in which there are many rabbit holes which into which consumers can disappear in the online world, on the, on the internet, this being very unhealthy and this somehow or other being the responsibility of the algorithmic calculations that are made that feed individual consumers particular kinds of content. I'm wondering if you can talk about how that operates, what, what role does AI play in creating this world in which people find themselves immersed, but also why you think that the kinds of reforms or the uh, regulations that might be imposed upon this kind of world are probably insufficient to really radically change them and, I guess, you know, eliminate the kinds of biases that we find in any even cursory examination of, you know, antisocial media. Right, yeah. Well, in some ways I think this this goes back to the the cheating that you guys are bringing up a minute ago, you know, that, that machinically AI is ruthless in its optimizations. So applied to any given situation, it will find the most effective, quote unquote, way of mapping its inputs to its required outputs mathematically. So that in, at the first level, this is the now pretty well-known effect that you, something like YouTube's algorithms will optimize on engagement and they will therefore discover that things that make people angry and outraged are quite engaging and then they will deliver more of the same. But I think there's also a, a couple of other levels to it that the another aspect that I maybe didn't bring out when you're asking the question about AI fundamentals is the, the fact that these things are fundamentally correlational. So they have not only do they not have any intelligence in, but whatever it is that they're doing has nothing to do with any sort of causal model of the world or any grounded understanding of how things operate. They just operate on very um, hyper-intensified correlations that, you know, deliver on if the optimization mission that they've been given, if you like. And I hope I'm not sort of anthropomorphizing the way I talk about these things, because these things are really just machinic operations. So excuse my language, but they are, they're optimizing in a very ruthless way and they're optimizing through correlations. So, so it's not only, I mean, this is a profound problem that social media steers people to ever further towards, you know, more outraging content because that's what keeps delivers on the metrics that the machine has been given. It's also that the fundamental mode of approaching the world is essentially correlational and therefore conspiratorial. You know, these things just find suggestive patterns and not causal in any way, which means they can very easily be invested with other forms of correlation depending on the surrounding sort of cultural or institutional paranoid mentality, you know, whatever it is. If So really where I'm trying to bring the conversation there is to say absolutely uh, online, you know, social media's tendency to poke people down extremism rabbit holes is a problem. But it's not really profoundly different to, come, to go back to something like RoboDebt to the, the what I would describe as a cons conspiratorial perspective of an institutions that you know, most people who are trying to claim welfare are potential cheats, you know, that that we should subject these people at the very beginning to a um, extremely harsh level of suspicion and um, harsh treatment because they're probably trying to cheat us out of something. I mean, that's the, or they're probably trying to cheat their way into the country if they're an asylum seeker or whatever it is. You know, this, this kind of um, bureaucratic institutional mentality, which is, paranoic is 
able to be extremely well reflected in these systems because they're kind of paranoia inducing systems as well. They just, they just find patterns and project onto the world, whatever it is um, that they're the culture that they're trying to optimize at any given time. And in the book, uh, you use the term metapolitics to describe AI. And when I read that term, I think of the alt-right and also the French new right. So I'm wondering if you can talk about, in terms of the, the kind of, I guess, not so much the technology or, or what's the relationship between this technology and the culture that surrounds it and supports it and actually helps to determine its form and its outcome? And how does that relate to, could you talk about how that more explicitly about that, how it relates to ideology and authoritarianism and fascism. That's explicitly where I took the term metapolitics from because I wanted to, you know, g- gesture towards that, as they say, as being very strongly related to my understanding and analysis of AI. And I think there's a couple of levels and, and they're kind of interesting for me, you know, things that I'm turning over quite a lot myself and where I'm going to go with this thing is, is, the two aspects of, on the one hand, these really, you know, shockingly vivid delusional ideologies, which seem to be so rampant in Silicon Valley at the moment, that sometimes long-termism, effective altruism, transhumanism, whatever else, of you know, accelerationism, or new reactionism, new reaction, new reaction, all of these kind of ideas that are circulating, at, at, you know, at a, at a frenzy amongst the people who are making decisions about AI, amongst the people who are producing these systems and at the same time how that relates to the other sort of dynamic that I was gesturing towards which is the preparation of social relations more broadly in a sort of microfascistic way to make them more susceptible or even welcoming to the rise of authoritarian explicit authoritarian politics so the metapolitics of AI is I suppose first I'd like to I'd like, just like to put down a marker and, and say that the way I'm trying to approach this is in a way that recognizes sort of technology and politics as uh, as domains of their own, but ones that can't possibly be separated. So I tend to refer, to think of it in terms of technopolitics. So when I'm trying to analyze these things, it's sort of, you know, it's not that, that um, there's a technology and then it's immersed in a particular culture or, or vice versa, you know, that you've got society and then along comes a technology. It's these things are absolutely co-emergent all the time, you know, and constantly involved in the reproduction of each other. So, so in Silicon Valley, the, the metapolitics of Silicon Valley is now becoming quite florid and visible in these weird ideologies. These, I mean, t- to describe them as anti-democratic would be, you know, not really doing them justice. These cosmic visions, which are so prevalent amongst the elite of the weird techno-utopia um, that they imagine on this planet or others which don't seem to involve most of us and, and definitely consider the suffering of most ordinary people as um, non-significant ripples in terms of their 10 to the 54 future humans fulfillment or whatever it is. So the materiality of AI feeds into that by, I think, inc- largely by encouraging the underlying idea of artificial general intelligence. And that's what most of the industry itself you know, has a real commitment to very prosaically, very pragmatically going through the white paper, you know, for the UK government's AI strategy, so influenced by companies like DeepMind, who in themselves, while producing actual technologies, are, you know, very driven, uh, founded on these kind of ideologies that artificial general intelligence, so that's the actual intelligent AI, the super intelligent AI is very close, not very far away. 
and just around the corner. And the what they read into the functions of actually working AI is signs of that emerging. I mean, it's it's rubbish, but it's a firmly held belief. And they're encouraging that belief by the very kinds of phenomenon that emerge out of these large models. The fact that they can seem to do certain things encourages, continues to encourage this belief that the idea that artificial general intelligence is there. Artificial general intelligence is itself a fundamentally eugenic idea. It comes actually from eugenics very explicitly. And it fun- fundamentally is an idea that ranks human worth ranks worth of being, ranks worth of survival in terms of this particular kind of measurement of intelligence. So in the value elites, which are, you know, like very uncomfortably right now in the UK becoming hugely influential in government circles, this is a metapolitics because it's an entire cosmology. You know, it's a cosmopolitics. At the other end, it's the, it's the stuff that that, you know, while I think we need to be extremely alarmed about that stuff, I also think it sometimes diverts our attention from an, another term that you guys would have seen in the book is, is necropolitics, which I borrowed from Achille and Bembe, just to describe the actually existing in the present tendency of AI to increase and amplify situations where people are sifted in terms of their, you know, survival and to, in, in terms of their worth for uh, preserving, if you like. And I think sometimes with this focus on the metapolitics of long-termism, effective altruism, which is crazy, dangerous ideology, we also, I, I, I believe these are taken up by the EU and taken up by people like, you know, people like the UK prime minister quite, quite deliberately to divert attention because they're attention grabbing and they're the industry vocalizations and they look like something to ride with to divert attention from the fact that these entities themselves, whether it's the UK government or the EU itself, are already just very much engaged in the deliberate construction of situations in which lots of people die. And with the EU is hailed as, you know, developing the EU AI AI Act, and it's, you know, the promise of a really effective AI regulation, world-leading European values at the same time, that the very same entity, you know, is very deliberately leaving people to drown in the Mediterranean or freeze to death in all the European borders. These entities are already killing people. And yet we see them somehow as the embodying the values that are going to save us from super intelligent AI. So I think the metapolitics, metapolitics of it is a framing that, you know, does encourage sort of almost occultist ideologies in the elite, but also obscures the, the horrors of the everyday. Dan, speaking of eugenics, could you speak a little bit about how AI and the the field of genetics are sort of interwoven and what it means that the field is so tightly interwoven with the AI industry? Right. Well, I mean, the way I try to articulate that in the book is just by looking at the history of actually a lot of the fundamental... as I've always referenced this idea of artificial general intelligence and this guy, Charles Spearman, who himself was working at a thing that I, I think was called the Eugenics Institute or the Eugenics Research Institute based at UCL in London. And that was the found, you know, that was, I think that was the Galton Institute for Eugenics. And that was founded by a guy called Carl Pearson, who was the, you know, who'd been sort of passed the, passed the, the baton by Francis Galton himself. These guys were both um, died in the world. Victorian eugenicists. And they, in fact, also happen to be a key to developing the kind of statistical methods 
you know, at a very basic level, the idea of linear regression, the idea of correlation coefficient. I mean, these things, the maths of current deep learning is complicated, you know, and I would say sophisticated, but actually those are its atomic elements, you know, some of its atomic elements, you know, it actually exists because of these kind of concepts. And these concepts were originally mathematized in order to quantify and operationalize a Victorian worldview, which was there to justify empire, which was there to justify the idea that some people's lives are worth more than others and some nations had a right to seize the lands of others and control them and so on and so on. So it's not to say that, you know, or, you know, that simply by being able to trace these connections makes AI automatically bad as everything around us has a genealogy, you know, that's connected in some, I mean, all technology, in my opinion, is inseparable from militarization in some way. And that is not an argument for simply throwing all in the bin and going back to something that we might imagine is pure. But it, it's also not possible to ignore the fact, that I think, that at the same time as having eugenic roots, AI shows signs of having potentially eugenicist application. And I think in the book, I, you know, I, I'm quite happy in a way in the book that I happen to pick on education as one of those examples because, um, and, and I think you wanted to, to discuss genomics a little bit, but there's a very interesting um, overlap between AI's idea about optimizations and, and essentialist determinism and, and those in current genomics, which has been a gateway to so-called race realism. I suspect this is something you guys have already turned over once or twice. And, you know, the, the, the way this is providing a gateway for the resurgence of, of race science. And that, that I think is something that I, I already read. That's why I tried to lay out in the book why I think actually the AI that we already have is in fact a, a concrete and operating version of race science. So it's not just that these systems are biased. In fact, bias is not a good way of looking at them because it, it misses both the structural inequalities that we've got right now and where those come from and what they're, what they're constantly reproducing, which is still a, a kind of, the kind of worldview, the kind of imperial colonialist worldview, the kind of settler worldview uh, hasn't gone away. And eugenics itself, you know, went through kind of an unpopular you know, being an unpopular term after the Second World War, I think it's, it's coming back. It might not be always called exactly the same thing. But the last thing I want to say about it, and this is maybe also relevant to AI, is that it's also really important not to forget the eugenics was originally seen as a socially progressive uh, agenda. And there were many, many leftists in the 1930s, socialists, who also subscribe to eugenicist ideas. So uh, what I'm trying to just point towards there is the idea that, in a way, going back to my own origin story, which you asked about at the beginning, you know, the idea of AI for good is that the, the trying to take on the technologies that have these s such deeply burned in almost genetic tendencies of their own and turn them towards good purposes, you know, may itself be profoundly misleading and dangerous. Speaking of progressive thought and I guess the liberatory potentials of AI and, and I guess complex forms of technology, there's another tendency, which I wouldn't necessarily want to explicitly associate with eugenics and, and so on, but perhaps best represented in the phrase of luxury communism. And it seems to be based on the notion that one of the benefits 
of sophisticated forms of technology is that it does eliminate labour, and that's a good thing because it frees humanity, I suppose, to engage in all sorts of other creative activity. Could you kind of comment on, I guess maybe we've already covered this ground, but why you think it is that perhaps AI and and this even this, you know, highly mediated forms of association actually not the kind of thing or not the basis, the social basis for any kind of worthwhile vision of communism or, you know, the commoning of these sorts of technologies and society as a whole. From my perspective, you know, this is, this is a very, this is a, a fantasy and it seems to be, you know, kind of wishful thinking are really, I think it's one with quite long historical parallels. You know, there's many times that this kind of myth has come up. I think it may actually be a problem with some of the, you know, I'm not a scholar of Marxism, but I think it might be a problem actually with some of the Marxist perspectives on technology per se, which are a bit dualistic in my opinion. You know, they separate the technology from the politics. They're not techno-political. But much more, more concretely, this is a fantasy because it's, it displays complete ignorance of where the value generated by these entities actually comes from. Any cursory examination of any of these technologies in practice shows that the productivity or value produced by them is simply by more refined forms of exploitation and expropriation. They, there's no, the only value comes from people at some point in the line and the, 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 what they're scaling and amplifying is, is extractivism of one form or another. So they, you know, they can never generate luxury for everybody because the, whatever they do generate, you know, is absolutely dependent on, on existing and, and sort of refined f- forms of exploitation and, and ex- expropriation. And fundamentally then underneath that material extractivism and, you know, fossil fuel industry you know that there's just no way around it in my opinion and i think any materialist inspection of these technologies would would tell you that but i think there's even more in a way i think there's there's a fundamental aspect of these technologies that is foundationally anti-worker you know they 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 will never be for the ordinary person or for the worker because that's they come out of a perspective you know they they've been co- co-generated by a long uh, historical uh, stance which is fears the ordinary person fears the ordinary worker i might even say hates the ordinary worker i mean look at the you know the origins of you know the, the alleged origins of computing in experiments by charles babbage and his 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 machines you know, they are very explicitly, and I, th- I think I put this in the book, but there's there's just a, an absolutely fantastic paper came out recently by Meredith, Whit- Meredith Whitaker that goes into far more um, depth on on the relationship of Charles Babbage to contemporary computation and the ideologies and uh, exploitations that it perpetuates. You know, that show that this guy was really used used his own machines very explicitly as a model for his promotion of what was then the early factory system, and that the the ethos of that was absolutely to disempower the worker to, to, it wasn't the, the efficiency was a cover story. The optimization is always a cover story. The fundamental relation to these things that are promoting is, is forms of power and, you know, power over the ordinary 
citizen, power over the ordinary worker, power over the community. And that is impossible to reverse in the way that these technologies are constructed. So there is no, there's no luxury for everybody to be coming out of these things at all. And what they impose are, you know, material relations of labor and, and worldview that are completely, yeah, completely continuous of empire. That's not good. (laughs) (laughs) I was looking forward to it. Um, Dan, how can we resist AI? Yeah. Okay. That's good. I feel like I've really, I've been so negative. Well, you know, I mean, first off, just sort of flying off that last question, I'm, I'm not trying to assert, because I don't think you could, that there's, there's no place for even, adv- you know, advanced forms of computation in a society that maybe we'd all agree would be fairer and better. You know, not this kind of advanced computation for sure. And definitely a lot less computation because of all of the other stuff we talked about and the environmental consequences and so forth. But there are, I think there are ways of using algorithmic tools alongside all the other tools to hand. There are ways of, um, repurposing them, but you have to kind of, it's a bit like the old joke, you know, if I wanted to get to there, I wouldn't start from here. And I think it's very much the same with our current technology frameworks. I think we will be forced to resist AI, um, because AI fits so neatly with, in a way, you know, more profound crises that we're already facing, you know, financial crash, refugee crisis and climate crisis and, you know, whatever poly crisis spins out of those things. I'm starting to get negative again. So how do we resist them? The way I tried to approach it in the book was very much looking at the um, patterns of social and power relations that were made concrete in the technologies and, and, and kind of inverting them really. You know, and and in, to, to, for me, when I went through the analysis and I put these tendencies in in you know in the mirror, you know what I got was uh, more horizontalized relations, more mutual aid, more solidarity, more care in its broadest sense. So I tried to articulate how many many different times in the past and present people have approached solving problems, which is what AI claims to do, in this other way. And, and I think that's always, a, you know, it's at any concrete situation now where somebody is faced in their workplace or community or wherever it is with somebody going, I think we might have an AI based solution for that. It's, it's almost like you should sort of look behind you, look behind you to what the real problem is and the real solution might be. I mean, our NHS is being ripped apart by, which is our national health service being ripped apart by privatization. It was more or less the only good thing about the UK and it's being absolutely smashed. And, you know, AI is doing its bit there by, justifying the idea that we can manage with less doctors and nurses because we've got this kind of technology. It's always about reversing that and saying, well, actually what we need is just doctors and nurses and we don't need any of this stuff at all. And what we need to do is organize in some way to try to push for that, to try to argue for that and to try and bring that about. So the good thing there is that we have many, many philosophies of critique that are ready to hand of this, this kind of scientific, the scientific worldview that AI is just another instance of, you know, the one that says there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a better view. There's a view from above that has a superior understanding of what needs to be done and just say, well, that's just, just nonsense. You know, the only real understanding of what needs to be done comes from the people who are participating in it, the people who are doing it, the people who are producing it. And those are the people who need to say, whether it's in a factory or a community or a workplace or an institution or whatever it is. And there are, of course, 
many, many historical examples of ways to go about organizing that, which is why, you know, in the book, I, I, I pick on, you know, my figures, my templates for that are what I call workers and people's councils. But, you know, to me, it doesn't matter what you call them. It's more about establishing relationships that instantiate something different. And when I say instantiate or, or words like that, what I mean is that part of a kind of techno-political understanding would be that who we, who we kind of who we are, you know, how we, in an undifferentiated way, how we think of ourselves and how we understand the world and how we even experience our own emotions, how we experience affect, coming back to the social media, how, how all of that is constantly shaped and reshaped by the technical environment that we're in. And then there's only an iterative way out of that. The, then the iterative way out of that has to take on changing the technical arrangements, the arrangements of the apparatus, as I call it, and changing the social relations at the same time. All sounds very abstract and vague, but you know, as you guys would know in the book, I use try to use concrete examples. The, the concrete example of that that is best for me is the Lucas Plan of the nineteen seventies, where workers in an arms company did both things at the same time. You know, they they organised their own um, council to come up with an alternative future plan for the company, and what they did in doing that was actually prototyping using the skills that they already had you know, using their engineering skills that they had previously been applied to producing tanks and aircraft to producing early versions of, you know, uh, uh, hybrid vehicles and photovoltaic cells and kidney dialysis machines and wind, wind gen turbine generators and things that were actually decades ahead of their time in, the, in terms of how things have actually panned out. And they're not the only example. There's the GKN factory occupation in Italy right now, which I believe they originally made car axles. They occupied that factory because for the reason that any worker does because they were going to be thrown out because due to it being invested in by some hedge fund and austerity and all of the usual dynamics, the neoliberal dynamics. But what they then did, you know, was to say, okay, well, we have, we have tools, we have skills, and we also have the community who we're going to invite, if you like, in and say, what should we be doing? You know, we want to sustain something. We, we, we want to produce what are we going to produce? And, you know, I think actually they're looking at producing photovoltaic cells at the moment. I'm a little bit not up to date with developments there. But what I'm trying to do is use those comic examples to say, you know, that our reconstruction, our our resisting AI is is has to be a no. It's, it's one no many yeses, as the Zapatistas would say. You know, it's about trying to say this is absolutely something that should be refused. But that refusal is is lacking in in real uh, substance if it doesn't have an alternative vision, and that alternative vision isn't singular, but it does involve reconstructing um, on a, a material and social level at the same time. Because understanding that how we do that is is productive of the next step. You know how the arrangements that we make for producing the things that we need are what also produce the next version of us. So if we're, if we're looking at technology, we have to be prefigurative. We have to say we're going to use technologies and make technologies that have in them the kind of value relations of the world that we want to live in. Easy to say, <laughs> you know, much harder work to actually do it. Well, Dan, on that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on the show. If people want to find you, you are at danmcquillan.org and the book is Resisting AI, an anti-fascist approach to artificial intelligence out through Bristol University Press. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. 
Well, Andy, that's our time. We'll be back next week. We will. See you later. Bye-bye.
Sovereignty in the Time of the Voice, a panel discussion delving into the fight for First Nations justice against the backdrop of the colonial system attempting to diminish our power. Featuring MC Shirley Hood, Professor Chelsea Wadigo, Senator Lydia Forbes, and President Kieran Stewart Ashton of the Black People's Union. 6.30pm, Thursday 28th September at the Capitol Theatre, Swanston Street. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Eventbrite. Find the event on the Black People's Union's Facebook and Instagram pages. All proceeds to go to the Black Sovereign Movement. Hosted by Black People's Union and Renegade Activists, free CR supporters. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app.